Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is January the 18th, 2005. I will take a deep breath and refrain from any comment. On today's congressional hearings, those hearings, of course, to confirm Condi Rice as the future Secretary of State. Let's just blame it all on the women's liberation movement. That's my idea. Yes, that's the best thing to do. All those women's libers. Or how about let's um, blame the civil rights movement. Uh Uh-huh. I can't help wondering what Shirley Chisholm would say. Doubtless spinning, sitting up in heaven with Eleanor Roosevelt and saying, Good God, good God, Shirley Chisholm was the first African-American woman, you know, to have the audacity. Well, she did everything. She ran for president of the United States. Um... We all just thought she was a hoot, you know. It was funny because uh, when Shirley Chisholm was out there, she was pretty much all alone. Ron Dellums gave her the nod, but basically um, she was a a, a lone warrior. Um, when she died, I expected a flood of media coverage, you know, biographical documentaries, a portrait uh, of her life as a warrior for the people, Especially this past weekend, uh, celebrating Martin Luther King's birthday. Uh, Maxine Waters is Shirley Chisholm's natural heir. Uh, you know, the sort of woman who speaks truth to power and uh, just let the chips fall where they may. You know, the kind of woman who doesn't waste time being deferential or coy or ladylike this past weekend. I watched a little bit of the media memorabilia, trying to check out uh, what they <laughs> what they wanted to have us believe about Martin Luther King. Basically, the the only good stuff was on radio. Uh, there were some very um, disparate and well assorted bits of Black history, this and that. Not uh, all of it related to. Uh, what I would call the progressive movement. Most of it was about the guys, goddess bless them all. A fascinating documentary last night. It's on PBS. It will rerun. It's all about the first black heavyweight champion of the world, Jack Johnson. Doubtless that will repeat on PBS. Uh, the title is Unforgivable Blackness, The Rise and Fall of Jack Johnson. It's not a movie. It's a documentary. Southside Chicago as it really was, not as seen through the eyes of Hollywood. Most of us 
know the story or what we know about it um, from a play and a film called The Great White Hope that is a very famous uh, work. James Earl Jones attempted to, well, he did an incredible job, an incredible job of playing Jack Johnson. Uh, Jane Alexander played the the wife. There were actually any number of wives. Um, Jane Alexander was for a short, well, a couple of years, I think, uh, head of the National Endowment for the Arts. I recommend a book of hers called Command Performance, in which she talks about her efforts to uh, speak English and uh, deal with the uh, uh, the folks in Washington, D.C. <laughs> she... She actually saved the um, the National Endowment for the Arts, although there were severe cuts. The money was cut back. Uh, Jane Alexander is someone who knows how to combine art and ideology. Anyway, uh, the documentary film, the one I mentioned, Unforgivable Blackness, The Rise and Fall of Jack Johnson, is um, a lot more... Uh, what is it, revealing, factual. Uh, it reveals, of course, Jack Johnson's womanizing in detail. Nothing out of the ordinary, of course, but uh, now, as then, these things are always, uh, what's it, uh, tidied up. Jack Johnson traveled with a literal stable of white women, well, three anyway. Uh, in the movie, Jane Alexander played a woman called Etta uh, Duria, a glamorous, uh, the suicidal wife. Um, uh, my favorite anecdote from the documentary was a story that when Jack uh, Johnson was asked uh, why it is that white women uh, should be attracted to um, black men, Jack Johnson answered, uh, because we eat cold eels and think distant thoughts. <laughs> He had the kind of sense of humor that uh, kept him alive, at least, at least for a while. Um, I think of the blessed Muhammad Ali, who was able to take this uh, mythos and bring it up to date. Uh, to tell the truth, my own favorite film over the past weekend was running on cable. It's called The Long Walk Home. Now, that's a movie all about the Montgomery bus boycott, and it stars Whoopi Goldberg and Sissy Spacek. Now, damned if they didn't relegate this movie to the Women's Network, that's the Lifetime Channel, The Long Walk Home particularizes the civil rights struggle, examines the lives of um, a white Southern housewife, that's Sissy Spacek and her maid, played by Whoopi Goldberg, uh, Think of the parallels in South Africa. There have been several movies made about the women in that culture, how they um, come to recognize each other's uh, lives, understand what the other is going through. Whoopi Goldberg plays it straight. Uh, it's an amazing performance. She is a very tired working mom. She does it all with her eyes. Anyway, at some point, she helps Sissy Spacek do a little consciousness raising. Sissy Spacek has to defy her husband to do the right thing to drive uh, her maid, Odessa, you know, back and forth from work. It's a big deal. 
Anyway, there's a lot of realism here. Uh, I remember a few, oh, gee, a year or more ago, Whoopi Goldberg was being uh, interviewed by a group of journalists on some panel, a C-SPAN panel, and they kept uh, picking on her, asking her why she didn't do more progressive stuff and why she didn't... uh, you know, fight for the cause, and she says, well, what about the long walk home? She says, you guys, you journalists, you didn't do your job. She said, you know, the movie sank like a stone. Well, obviously, uh, it surfaced again, and like so many import films, it sometimes takes a while for people to get it, you know, to register that it's a worthwhile document. Uh, what I like best, well... There's a wonderful scene when Whoopi Goldberg uh, changes her shoes. Her feet are bloody from walking. Anyway, she gets some decent shoes on and takes her son to see uh, Martin Luther King speak. And she looks at her child and sees the effect that this is having on him. Uh, There's another scene when they're in church and uh, Dr. King's house has been bombed. And... uh, she just does it with her face. Um, it's funny because those of us who love Whoopi Goldberg forget sometimes that she is really a very accomplished, uh, beautiful actress. We figured this out with the color purple, but even that movie was, well, <laughs> so far from the book, you know. But this time, um, she lets it all hang out. I, I hope that that movie gets its place in the canon, you know, the canon of films, uh, sort of, oh, let's call it the, um, the vroom vroom guy movies like Mississippi Burning, you know, the, the loud, violent, um, uh, films, uh, I'm not sure they don't do more damage than, well, you know, always, the hero is some silly white guy from the FBI. Anyway, the lives of women, don't seem to be quite as appealing to filmmakers, the guys who make the movies, you know, put things on screen. They always want the action, the action, when, of course, the real action is internal. It's all about people who think and feel and people who understand how change can come about slowly, one person at a time, you know. It's called particularizing uh, You go deep enough into the subjective and you get a universal truth. Uh, There's a beautiful scene in the film in uh, The Long Walk Home that I remember it helped me. I've been working on, a well, it was several stories that I have written about some of the uh, black mothers who helped raise me. Sissy Spacek takes down a family photo album and she looks through the pictures and very often the part of the picture uh, with the black woman, the maid, is blurred. Or we just see, we see the hand of this woman holding the hand of the child. Uh, and of course there are scenes from her own childhood and her family's childhood. Uh, yes, the black mother figure is obscured, but there she is. I think of the films about the black mothers who raised children all over the world. I had an early story, I think, written in the very beginning of the 70s called Pepper Trees, which was much published. 
I made an effort at surrealism, a child's eye view of what happens to these mother figures. Uh, you know, when you see it at the age of six or seven, it's all a little confusing. Um, that story, it's called Pepper Trees. It's in a book of mine called Oh By the Caves. Uh, all four of my books, by the way, are available at Cody's Bookstore. Thank you for your kind letters asking me uh, where these things can be found. Also, Amazon.com has two of my books listed. Those are also listed on RegentPress.net. I think meaning to mention that, yes, and Cody's Books in Berkeley, I think, has all four titles. There's the movie book. That's uh, Mind Over Mia. And then there's a collection of essays called Stone's Throw, that's Women and Literature, then Over by the Caves, and then a memoir called Telegraph Avenue, Then. Now, what I want to do today, uh, in honor of Martin King, I noticed that most of the coverage over the weekend was of his speeches, uh, the immortal, the voice, you know, uh, Hearing the voice, so all the difference. I remember giving my students the I Have a Dream speech, and they just wanted to hear it. They wanted to hear hear him speak. Um, I did find something. It's a letter. It's the letter from Birmingham Jail, 1963. And I put it in my files with Henry Thoreau's civil disobedience. You remember Henry Thoreau refused to pay his taxes because... He thought that it was an unjust, uh, unjust tax. And of course, uh, the life, the entire life and works of Mahatma Gandhi, uh, all these moral examples of people who were willing to do nonviolent resistance. Uh, and of course, uh, my little mantra here on my file is that morality is the desire to Lessen suffering on earth. That's what morality is about. It's so difficult these days to define the terms. Morality uh, under this current administration uh, seems to be nothing but uh, yeah, morality, virginity, something like that. Uh, anyway, back in 1963, Martin Luther King was in jail. And he wrote a letter from the Birmingham City Jail in which he tried to explain... Uh, the actions he was taking, he used, of course, Edmund Burke's uh, phrase from 1770. Edmund Burke wrote, The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Yes, it is those of us who uh, fail to act who are basically responsible for what is coming down now. Uh, in his letter, uh, Martin Luther King writes, Just as Socrates felt that it was necessary to create a tension in the mind so that individuals could rise from the bondage of myths and half-truths to the unfettered realm of creative analysis and objective appraisal, we must see the need of having non-violent gadflies to create the kind of tension in society that will help men rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding and brotherhood. 
History is the long and tragic story of the fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. Individuals may see the moral light and voluntarily give up their unjust posture. But groups, groups are more immoral than individuals. I have to put my footnote in here, yes. That's what call an army, yes, an army. Groups are more immoral than individuals. King goes on to write, You express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. Uh, footnote, he's writing this letter to the newspaper, yes. You express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. This is certainly a legitimate concern. Since we so diligently urge people to obey the Supreme Court's decision of 1954, outlawing segregation in the public schools, it is rather strange and paradoxical to find us consciously breaking laws. One may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer is found in the fact that there are two types of laws. There are just laws and there are unjust laws. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal, but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. I hope you can see the distinction I'm trying to point out. One who breaks an unjust law must do it openly, lovingly, and with a willingness to accept the penalty. I submit that an individual who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust and willingly accepts the penalty by staying in jail to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice, is in reality expressing the very highest respect for law. Of course, there is nothing new about this kind of civil disobedience. It was seen sublimely in the refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar because a higher moral law was involved. It was practiced superbly by the early Christians who were willing to face hungry lions and the excruciating pain of chopping blocks before submitting to certain unjust laws of the Roman Empire. To a degree, academic freedom is a reality today because Socrates practiced civil disobedience. We can never forget that everything Hitler did in Germany was legal, and everything the Hungarian freedom fighters did in Hungary was illegal. It was illegal to aid and comfort a Jew in Hitler's Germany. We have to repent in this generation not merely for the vitriolic words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. We must come to see that human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. 
It comes through the tireless efforts and persistent work of men willing to be co-workers with God, and without this hard work, time itself, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. If I have said anything in this letter that is an understatement of the truth and is indicative of my having a patience that makes me patient with anything less than brotherhood, I beg God to forgive me. That's the end of the excerpts from Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham Jail. It is much longer. Um, I'm sure you can find it if you uh, look up Martin Luther King in the papers. Um, it's an amazing letter, and I remember using it with my students back in uh, the 60s. It was such a difficult time. Um, actually, it was 1968. I remember using this letter when King was killed, uh, murdered, assassinated. And uh, it was a terrible day in my school. I think I was at Woodrow Wilson Junior High School that day. And, um, yes, he'd been killed the night before, the evening before. Came to school, and by 11 o'clock, the school was closed down, broken windows, cops. General Brouhaha, uh, my own little first grader, got caught up in it uh, as a white kid in a nearly all-black school. Things were pretty terrible that day, and... I remember I had come to school, I'd stayed up most of the night, and I had run off copies of the letter from Birmingham City Jail, and I'd run off copies of the I Have a Dream speech, and of course I was ready to do instant history. Yes, I was trying to think in centuries, but of course uh, it was much, much too early for that. It may even be too early now, yes, time itself. Time itself is an ally of the forces of social stagnation. What have we done in all these intervening years? But, um, yes, we have the day. We have Martin Luther King. Uh, we have his birthday. But once again, we've simply made him into an icon and not understood just exactly what it was he wanted us to do in terms of uh, nonviolent resistance. And I do appreciate so much what he said about groups. I tried to ask my students how that works. You know, we talked about male bonding and how a group gets together and then we call it a gang. And they become so much stronger than the individual in the group. And then we tried to talk about how we could come together, say, in other groups, you know, like unions. <laughs> yes, progressive groups. Never mind, I uh, want to read you just a couple of poems. Um, I had so many things today. I had uh, Jimmy Baldwin's play, Blues for Mr. Charlie. That's something I would love to see. Uh, I would like to see that on television over this weekend at King's birthday. I would also like to see the wonderful production of... Uh, Go Tell It on the Mountain, the one with Alfre Woodard in it. Uh, that's a absolutely incredible uh, film made from Baldwin's 
uh, novel, but the difficulty is, uh, it's not altogether politically correct. So I guess, um, you know, the father is not a nice man. So difficult these days um, to hang on to the past and not um, not hide from the facts. Uh, let me read you this little poem by Julia Vinograd. I turned off my television. I think I'll leave it off till Easter. I can't take it. Julia Vinograd writes a poem called Watching the News. It's in her new book, Skull and Crosswords. This poem is Watching the News. About equal time for Iraq and Michael Jackson. Michael leads the troops, moonwalking into Baghdad, while pilots drop babies instead of bombs. Undercover agents guard the Madonna's blue dress in case of Clinton stains. We'll give all the perfumes of Arabia to Lacey Peterson's unborn child, and we'll find him by following yonder burning nightclub to shepherds who've been in Iraq so long. The only names they know are their wives and their sheep, and not always in that order. We'll put duct tape over the child's mouth when he cries. No child in the world will ever cry again. We've got plenty of duct tape, and we're not afraid to use it. The news is almost as silly as the commercials dead soldiers wash their shrouds with this detergent, this breakfast cereal, can be eaten through a gas mask. This storage company will find a place to put the war. And if the dead aren't 100% satisfied, this weight loss plan just return for a guaranteed refund, yes. It strikes me over and over again. Yet the world we live in is so surrealistic. Uh, it leaves you breathless. I was listening, of course, to Condi Rice saying how fortunate this tsunami was for our public relations uh, plans, indeed. <laughs> I often wonder, um, uh, yes, God forbid she should see herself or see her. Never mind, uh, I wanted to announce one more time that uh, Donald Beardsley is scheduled to be executed by the state of California at uh, 12.01, that is midnight tonight, one minute after midnight. KPFA will be going live from San Quentin. And uh, KPFA will bring you coverage from the vigil at the gates of the prison, updates from inside, and analysis of any late-breaking developments that's... Uh, Live coverage of the Beardsley execution. Uh, that coverage will start at 10 p.m. tonight. And I want to thank uh, KPFA again for the lengthy coverage of um, Condi Rice's testimony, if you want to call it that. I promised myself no comments, but I do think that she gets incredible points for being able to talk nonstop and say absolute nothing. What was it Oscar Wilde used to say? He used to talk about um, a gentleman around uh, town and he would say, yes, he looks everything and is nothing. Uh, oh, my last word, the tree of life, the tree of life. I want to read you uh, just the first paragraph of an African creation myth called the word. Words, everything we get is words, means absolutely nothing. You know, we have this great 
big monolith behemoth in the middle of the room. The word was not something that could be seen. The word is a force that enables one thing to create another. Next time, we'll talk a little bit more about African creation myths. This has been Jennifer Stone. I won't be on this Thursday because the hearings, I think, are extended. Until this time next week, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. There's your picture Drop the shadows Out of sight On January 19th at 12.01 a.m., the state of California is scheduled to execute Donald Beardsley. Severely brain damaged at the time he committed his crime, Beardsley would be the 11th person executed since California reinstated the death penalty in 1978. KPFA will bring you live coverage from the gates of San Quentin starting at 10 p.m. Tuesday night. We'll bring you reports from inside death row, live updates on last-minute appeals, and interviews with community activists holding a vigil. That's live from San Quentin this Tuesday, January 18th, starting at 10 p.m. on KPFA 94.1 FM or kpfa.org.